0: Welcome to Lincoln Log, where we speak with leading historians and other officials about their stories, research, and wisdom. Expand your knowledge and indulge your curiosity here on Lincoln Log. This podcast is produced by the Abraham Lincoln Association, aiding and promoting Abraham Lincoln's life and legacy. Founded in 1908, the ALA remains the nation's oldest and largest Lincoln organization. Learn more at AbrahamLincolnAssociation.org. Greetings. I am your host, Joshua Claiborne, and I am pleased to welcome John White and Scott Sandage to our Lincoln Log podcast. I'm very, very excited about today's show. Most of our episodes will feature a single historian or official, and then we'll talk about a wide range of issues. But today we're going to flip the normal setup and take two very accomplished Lincolnians to discuss a single hot topic the Emancipation Memorial in Washington, DC, as well as the meaning of monuments and memorials more generally. John White is a professor of American Studies at Christopher Newport University. He is author or editor of 10 books and more than 100 e- articles, essays, and reviews about the Civil War, including several prominent award-winning books. Scott Sandage is a cultural historian at Carnegie Mellon University, specializing in the 19th century United States and in changing aspects of American identity. He is author of the award-winning book, Born Loser, A History of Failure in America, and many other publications, including the paper titled, A Marble House Divided, The Lincoln Memorial, The Civil Rights Movement, and The Politics of Memory. John and Scott, thank you so much for joining the podcast.
1: Thanks for having us. Glad to so, be
0: here. Thank you, yeah. So to set the stage for our discussion today, uh, following the Civil War, freed slaves began contributing to a memorial honoring Abraham Lincoln, and then in 1876, the Emancipation Memorial was erected a few blocks from the U.S. Capitol in a square we now call Lincoln Park. Notably, Frederick Douglass spoke at the monument's unveil- unveiling. The Emancipation Memorial depicts Abraham Lincoln standing beside a formerly enslaved African-American man in broken shackles down on one knee, and depending on who you ask your perspective, he's either rising or crouching. But this year, in early 20, June 2020, um, as nearly all statues and memorial came under greater scrutiny, Protesters with the group Freedom Neighborhood rallied at the park to discuss potentially pulling down the statute, with many in the crowd calling for its removal. As a result, on July 1st, members of the Boston Art Commission voted unanimously to remove Boston's copy of the sculpture. Um, Several leaders weighed in on what should then happen to the statute in D.C., including several prominent historians who have appeared on this podcast to discuss the issue, including Lucas Morrell and David Blight. So I'd like to begin with the story that brought you two together about this issue. Um, We're all members of the Abraham Lincoln Institute, um, and you two staked out uh, somewhat different positions, one favoring keeping the existing memorial untouched and the other preferring uh, potentially moving it elsewhere. And that led to a a wonderful collaboration. If you could talk about what the genesis of your collaboration and how you guys came together to see um, a common perspective on this.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny how this happens with historians. People often ask me, is there anything new to say about Abraham Lincoln? And I suppose the same could be said of Frederick Douglass. Is there anything new to be said? But you can always find new materials, and Scott and I were able to do that. So last Friday, I published a piece in The Hill where I made the case that we should keep this statue in place. And the thing about The Hill article It dropped on Friday night, excuse me, dropped on Friday night at 6 p.m. When you want to kill a story, that's where you put it. But fortunately, I got an email that night that said, you know, as far as I know, the only evidence that Frederick Douglass didn't like this statue was published in the 20th century. I thought, wow, I'd never heard that before. And so I contacted Scott, or Scott and I started DMing on Twitter. And I said to Scott, you know, I got this email that says the only evidence that Frederick Douglass didn't like the statue is from the early 20th century. Have you heard that before? And Scott, I'll let you tell your response.
2: <clears throat> my response was wrong, <laughs> um, which was wrong um, in, in both ways. Um, and uh, so my wrong to John was uh, based on my recollection that, um, it was fairly well accepted that during the Prepared Address, uh, in which Douglass uh, certainly was uh, very critical in a thoughtful and, I think, even-handed way, uh, very critical of Lincoln, um, both as a person uh, with views about race and as a president with policies about slavery, um, that Douglas had paused and, and extemporized an aside during his address and had said, um, you know, that he didn't like the statue because it showed the Negro, and that's the word, of course, that Frederick Douglass used in 1876. It showed the Negro on his knees when a more manly attitude would have been indicative of freedom. So I went to newspapers.com, uh, and the way you use a historical database um, when you're looking for a needle in a haystack is uh, you identify the most unusual phrase or the most Mm -hmm. unusual word um, in the target that you're looking for. Uh, Because if you just get on a newspaper database and put in Lincoln, Douglas and 1876, you're going to get thousands of Mm -hmm. of hits um, from places that are publishing the text of the speech or publishing reports about the dedication. So, um, in fact, let me pull this up and I'll be able to see it, you can't, I could share it with you if you want, but um, so the, the exact quotation from Douglas is, what I want to see before I die is a monument representing the Negro, not couchant, C-O-U-C-H-A-N-T, French word, couchant, not crouching on his knees like a four-footed animal, but erect on his feet like a man. So that had been quoted in this little one column in Fred Douglas says. So then I started looking for um Lincoln statue in quotation marks and Couchon in you know quotation marks and it takes some trial and error and I probably tried you know Lincoln Monument and um, Frederick Douglass's name is frequently misspelled in 19th century newspapers. It has two S's frequently printed without an S. So in maybe five minutes, 20 minutes for the whole process on Saturday morning, I found uh, a letter um, that Frederick Douglass had written five days after the dedication of the monument. So that was the 14th of April. It was the um, 11th anniversary of Lincoln's assassination. And on the 19th of April, uh, the Washington National Republican, and we can talk about what kind of a newspaper that was, published a letter from Frederick Douglass, and this was perhaps three column inches, um, so longer than the little blur, little filler that I had seen, um, in which Douglass, um, laid out his objections to the statue that he had dedicated just a few days before. Um, and, you know, we may be able to have some fun speculating, you know, what happened in those five days between giving the speech that says nothing critical about the statue and five days later, writing a letter that is critical of the statue, but uh, it didn't immediately dawn on me that this was a letter that nobody had ever seen, presumably, um, and certainly hasn't been cited or reprinted since 1876, other than other newspapers, um, two other newspapers picked up the whole letter and about a dozen newspapers ran that little Frederick Douglass says excerpt from the letter. So it didn't quite dawn on me that this was a new Frederick Douglass letter. Um, there are two scholarly editions of Frederick Douglass's papers, one edited uh, by the great John Blassingame at Yale University, um, and that was a selected um, mm-hmm. papers of Frederick Douglass, and now ongoing at the University of Indiana in Bloomington, um, a modern annotating digitizing um, massive project to digitize, uh, to um, include everything, and it's very similar to um, what happened with Abraham Lincoln. You know, there was Basler, and, every, and people thought Basler was everything, and then we learned that you know Basler is not even close to being everything. And mm-hmm. the Lincoln legal project, and the, um, the, um, the broader papers today, the courts martial, yeah, the courts yeah. martial, and you know, and there were all there was all this White House office correspondence that hadn't been included in Basler, etc. So that's what's happening with Frederick Douglass right now. Um, So immediately um, I I sent it to John, but I also sent it to David W. Blight, um, who's been a guest on your podcast, and so um, your viewers will know um, his reputation and his life's work really um, for the last 40 years, writing um, articles and books about Frederick Douglass leading Mm -hmm. uh, last year to his Pulitzer Prize-winning biography. Um, and David hadn't seen it either, um, and he immediately texted it to Richard Whiteman Fox, um, who wrote a book about um, Lincoln's body. Um, you know what happened to Lincoln's body after um, after his death. So uh, you know it, it became a little bit of uh, a little bit of a wildfire. Um, but John and I uh, then decided that uh, we would write a piece, and I think John, maybe you had even suggested that night. Hey. Yeah, um, and and I was a little skeptical because um, I exist on the, I have always existed uh, on the fringes of Lincoln scholarship. I published that one article nearly 30 years ago um, in my book, um, Born Losers. Uh, I have a section on Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln and I have some um, um, information on Abraham Lincoln as a self-made man and Lincoln's um, personal fears of failure and those kinds of things. But um, I, I'm not um, a Lincoln guy in the way that, um, you know, so many of my friends are, like the two of you, um, or Alan Gelzo or Michael Burlingame. Um, and so I, I didn't really feel that, you know, this was um, something that I should weigh into. Um, but John persuaded me, and probably we should go back to John on that.
1: Yeah. Well, Saturday morning when I got the letter from Scott, I just thought, this is amazing. It's just so important Mm -hmm. because the debate right now is about what to do with Lincoln Park and what to do with the statue. Do we take it down? Do we rip it down? Do we remove it and send it to a museum or do we leave it there? And here, Frederick Douglass is giving advice 144 years ago with what to do with Lincoln Park, saying I mean, he says in the letter, the statue is beautiful, and he, but he says it only tells part of the truth. It doesn't tell the whole truth, and and uh, Douglass was just so prescient in terms of thinking about the meaning of monuments, that no, he said no single monument can tell the whole truth of any subject, right. and he was right, and that's one of the complaints that people rightly have with this monument, is it doesn't tell the whole truth, and so Douglass had suggested in 1876, we should add more monument, another monument to this space. And uh, if people had listened to him then, maybe we wouldn't be in quite the same place we are with Lincoln Park today. And so when I saw the letter from Scott, I thought we should write something about this. We should get this out there before, you know. at, at the moment that we wrote it, and I suppose this thread is still out there, people are saying, just rip it down. Right. So I thought if we can get Frederick Douglass's words out there to a broad enough audience maybe cooler heads can prevail, we can say, look at what Frederick Douglass said, we should listen to this advice, and so Saturday morning, uh, Scott and I started writing, and he's right, I have two little kids, so I was tied up throughout most of the day, but every little bit of time that I could, I would do a little writing, Scott did a lot of writing, and we sent it back and forth, and I think in the end, we did 12 drafts of it before we then sent it off to uh, Smithsonian.
0: And that's where it appeared in the Smithsonian today yeah and I, and i don't I don't want to uh I, I think obviously we know, and i I, I assume many of our listeners and, and viewers know this, but just to underscore the point, most of the criticism of this monument is not because it portrays Lincoln and that there's right. not, no real animosity toward Lincoln per se, but rather how it portrays the freed slave as not equal to to Lincoln but rather crouching down subservient, almost right. an, still depending on your perspective, uh, a slave-like role in many, many, many ways.
1: I will say not that social media, you know, social media is what it is. I have seen some criticism of Lincoln on social media and and that it depicts him as a white savior. And so for that reason, there are some who are offended by not just the the depiction of uh, Archer Alexander, the former slave who was the model for the the pose but also the depiction of lincoln but yes the majority of it has to do with how the former slave is depicted
0: well and i just i get concerned sometimes by the clickbait headlines that sort of suggest lincoln statue coming down i think some reader readers believe it's because they're criticizing lincoln as a person if you just read the headline and that's not obviously the issue here it's how it portrays the, the freed slave and mm-hmm. and as you guys know it i mean there's been so much attention given to well what did Frederick douglas one of the preeminent black leaders at the time feel about it. And now you've uncovered this incredible news, new evidence of how he did feel about it and what should be done. It may be beneficial for folks to sort of take a step back and talk about the genesis of the monument and how it came to be. Um, I know the plaque of the Memorial explains that it was built with funds contributed by emancipated citizens. Um, and the first $5 came from Charlotte Scott, a freed woman of Virginia um and contributed really her, what I, what I believe was her first earnings in freedom. Right. Um, and she had the original idea, quote, and I think this comes from you all's uh, column, if I'm not mistaken, on the day she heard of President Lincoln's death to build a monument to his memory. And I suspect, suspect most of the people who first view the monument aren't aware of this background. Um, does that background? And
2: actually? That actually, the quote that you just read that we quoted in our article, actually comes from the plaque on the on front of the, okay. of the monument. So the whole story of Charlotte Scott uh, and her five dollars and the fundraising effort among uh, emancipated citizens, which is the word that is used rather than emancipated freed slaves or emancipated, uh, um, you know, um, mm-hmm. former slave, emancipated citizens, um, that whole story is actually told on the um, pedestal of the, of the memorial. Um, so anyone who goes there can read it. But, you know, as anybody who's ever been to any kind of museum knows, um, you go to see cool stuff. You don't go to read the placards. And, you know, history nerds like us read the placards and read the books. But for most people, you know, the uh, the First Lady's ball gowns uh, at the Smithsonian, you know, are what they are. And um, although you could read that Eleanor Roosevelt was six feet tall, um, you know, on the placard, not everybody does that, right? So the information is there, and it always has been there. But um, it's the the image itself is um, so arresting, um, re- you know. However you happen to see it, and and we may want to go back to how you know the disagreement that John and I had before we um, even started writing. Yeah. But um, happy also to talk about the origin of it. Well,
0: yeah, be, I guess you, that's a good point. I mean, before we get to sort of the statue more of the statute's history, I mean, could you stake out what each of your positions were before this new evidence came to light that helped bring you together to a new... um, Sure. The
1: argument I made in the Hill piece last Friday was that the statute should be kept in place, and I, I traced the history of the Charlotte Scott giving the money, and then the formation of a national organization to raise funds And that national organization included a a number of prominent African Americans, Henry Highland Garnett, Frederick Douglass, Martin Delaney. I mean, it's a who's who list of prominent Black leaders from the 19th century. And so I essentially made the case that this statue should be kept in place because it preserves their story. And I acknowledge in in the piece, and this is something we can talk about, how eventually this movement that had been started by African Americans was co-opted by a white organization, the Western Sanitary Commission, and then they had the say in the design of the statue. But I thought, you know, this thing is a really important piece of history that connects Lincoln to African Americans and former slaves, and it, it should be kept in place.
2: I agreed with all of that. Um, you know, th- this is essentially the first piece of african-american originated public art um, it's also the first monument to Abraham Lincoln um, that that was of national prominence um, but my uh, position last Friday and in the round-robin emailing that the Lincoln Institute did was that uh, you know looking all around at what was happening um, it seemed to me that it was likely to be coming down any minute and mm-hmm. um, um, you you your listeners and viewers will have seen uh, the graffiti that was, um, that covered the Robert E. Lee statue in Richmond before it came down. So I was concerned in part that um, if the statue was pulled down spontaneously that it would be damaged uh, beyond uh, restoration or that it would be defaced and so it seemed to me that uh, it ought to be taken into protective custody, so to speak. Um, uh, not the way it is now. I, I don't think that, um, that we're in a sustainable situation right now where it's surrounded by concrete barriers and, mm-hmm. and security fencing and armed guards. I think that's probably not um, a, a, a long-term solution. But the other reason that I um, thought that it should come down is um, I, I think that on its own, standing on its own, and that's not the solution that, um, Frederick Douglass inspired John and I to write about. But on its own, I think that the, the statue is visually unredeemable. That's the, um, the word that I used in my contribution to the Lincoln Institute's email discussion. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the white savior image is problematic, um, because that's not what Lincoln's role was, um, historically speaking. That's not how um, slavery came to a practical and legal end and constitutional end in the United States. That's a much more complicated story. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, um, the death of George Floyd, um, who died with somebody's knee on his neck, um, and the, uh, the politics of uh, Colin Kaepernick, um, you know, taking a knee, Um, it just seemed like the the knee, uh, itself is kind of a flashpoint right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, the discussions that people were having around this statue and the one in Boston, which is coming down, um, Mm -hmm. you probably should note there's a not, not quite identical, but, um, similar, um, installation on Park Square near Mm -hmm. Copley Plaza in, uh, Boston, and the Boston City Council has voted to remove that. Um, that is just such a visceral image of um, a white savior standing over a, um, a kneeling um, African-American. And um, <clears throat> for those who are really interested in this topic, um, the, the definitive book on the, this particular memorial and similar ones is by uh, my colleague and friend here in Pittsburgh, Kirk Savage, who wrote a book in 1997 called Standing Soldiers, Kneeling Slaves. And Kirk makes the point, uh, which I've never really forgotten, um, that although you can look carefully at this at this statue and discern that he is rising, that he is actively breaking his own chains, um, he is, however, on his knees and he will always remain on his knees. Mm-hmm. He may be rising, but he will never rise. He may be getting up, but he will never get up. He will always stay. Uh, and I guess the final thing that I, Um, that I felt about this is, um, suppose it had been pulled down last week. Um, That's in no way a loss, in my opinion, um, to the memory of Abraham Lincoln. Um, That is in no way a It has no impact whatsoever on the memory of Abraham Lincoln, Um, among other reasons, because there are at least four that I can think of other statues of Abraham Lincoln in Washington, D.C., including the largest and most prominent memorial in the city of Washington.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, There's a statue of Lincoln in front of the D.C. courthouse. There's, of course, a statue of Lincoln by... um, so give me, give me the name, the, the young woman, that,
1: um, Vinnie Rehm in the Capitol. Vinnie,
2: Vinnie Rehm, all I could think of was Harriet Hosmer. Yeah, there's the Vinnie Rehm statue in the Capitol. you know. So and then there there's our, one
1: outside of, is it the Federal Trade Commission
2: building? I
1: can't remember which.
2: So there are numerous, uh, yeah. statues of Abraham Lincoln in our nation's capital. Mm-hmm. So if this were just a statue of Lincoln, let's say, and, and there wasn't, um, this, um, history behind it, that this was originated and funded by African Americans, um, I would say let it go. Um, you know, there's plenty of other statues of Abraham Lincoln. Um, and you know, he's, he's not going to fade into obscurity. Charlotte Scott, Charlotte Scott on the other hand, um, you know, uh, as, as John and I discovered from her obituary, was considered, um, the most famous African-American woman in America because she had, um, originated this statue and Mm -hmm. John found a, um, um, an article in a black The newspaper.
1: Washington Bee. Yeah.
2: And what did they call her? Or what did they, what did yeah, phrase so did they use? Yeah,
1: so shortly after she died, the Washington Bee ran a story about a rally for African Americans that was going to take place at Lincoln Park. And they referred to it as the Charlotte Scott Emancipation Statue in Lincoln Park. And I thought it's just such a wonderful connection that the black community through that newspaper is making between her and that that space.
2: And that is a really important um, part uh, and we didn't have room really to explore it in our Smithsonian piece, but that's a really important part of the story of this memorial. Not only that it was originated by um, the African-American community, but that it was used by the African-American community. So anybody who's gone to school in the United States um, in the last 50 years knows that in 1963 Martin Luther King gave this famous speech called I Have a Dream. Uh, I would say 95% of the people who have ever heard of that speech could tell you exactly where that speech was delivered. Right. Delivered in front of the Lincoln Memorial. You know, fewer people remember that Marian Anderson in 1939 was denied the use of Constitution Hall in Washington DC, the largest auditorium at that time, owned by the Daughters of the American Revolution, um, who replied, to a booking request that they did not allow um, colored artists to use the hall. And so she gave it a concert at the Lincoln Memorial. So that's a tradition of African-American protest, nonviolent direct action protest. Um, and you know, I think we'll probably get into, you know, if they had gone in 1963 to tear down the Lincoln Memorial, we would probably remember that day very differently. Mm-hmm. But that's a tradition of of African-American protests that made use of the image of Abraham Lincoln as as a stage or as a a touchstone to get Americans' attention and and get people thinking about emancipation and the great emancipator and and all of those things in a much more complex way than any statue could ever show. And the fact that that began, that that tradition of protest began with. African-Americans from Capitol Hill gathering to um, do at the Charlotte Scott Emancipation Monument what we now remember, Martin Luther King, and, you know, every protest movement that you can name on every end of the political spectrum um, Mm -hmm. in the last 50 years going to the Lincoln Memorial. The fact that that tradition began with this statue um, is yet another, um, you know,
1: Can I build off of that? You know, the point you just made made me think of when you go to the Lincoln Memorial today, there's a plaque on the ground where Martin Luther King stood. And so you can stand in that place in the shadow of Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And so one of the the proposals that we offer at the end of the Smithsonian piece is first to add Frederick Douglass's newly discovered letter to the pedestal of Lincoln so that people see what he was saying in that time. Mm -hmm. And then to think about adding Charlotte Scott and Frederick Douglass, adding Charlotte Scott to that place and giving her a permanent connection to that very important site, I think. And and we know what she looks like because they took photographs of her when she went to the dedication in 1876. So we could see a statue made that resembles her and that would then really connect her and what she represented to that space.
0: And they would be standing on equal footing with abraham lincoln and i think and i don't remember if it was lucas morrell or michael burlingham or david blight but somebody said to show the full flowering of citizenship and equality really right. because that was i what some would argue is the idea that the the the, the freed citizen is starting to stand but it doesn't really as, as we've discussed and talked about doesn't show the full flowering or the full result of that and that's what we're always working toward, but to have a statue that maybe depicts that a little better, I guess, would be the idea. Right.
2: He's also naked, um, Mm. and, um, you know, even though, uh, and some in the Lincoln Institute round robin, you know, pointed out what the three of us all know, and which many of your viewers, I'm sure, know. Uh, On April 4th, 1865, Abraham Lincoln visited uh, Richmond, which had been taken and had fallen. and And there are numerous eyewitness reports, not just one, but numerous eyewitness reports that state that um, the African-American population of Richmond, some of whom had been free before the war um, and all of whom were now free, um, uh, clustered around Abraham Lincoln, and some of them, you know, fell to their knees and and kissed his hand and and thanked him. And and, um, the the quote that is attributed, you know, um, don't kneel to me, kneel, but to God, you know, is, is probably um, of the 1916 recollected words variety. But nevertheless, it did happen that mm-hmm. African Americans got on their knees before Abraham Lincoln, but not naked. And, you know, so the, the statue is, is really problematic because, mm-hmm. um, you know, to the degree that it represents symbolically Lincoln's role in ending slavery, which is, of course, huge. And to the degree that it represents an American, uh, an African-American, you know, the statue had been redesigned to make sure that the figure was not an African or, or a classical slave, but an African-American. Um, but he's in swaddling clothes. Mm-hmm. He is naked. Um, and, and that's just not um, historically accurate in any way. You know, if, if we had a statue of, of you know, if the statue in Richmond, you know, which is, was also controversial um, that was added to Richmond a few years ago, if that had shown Lincoln surrounded by um, formerly enslaved and and, uh, free people of color, um, represented as Charlotte Scott appears in her photograph, you know, as, um, you know, um, self-determining, grown-up, strong people. um, Mm -hmm and some of them were on their knees and some of them weren't, you know, that, that would be a di- very different image um, that, that's rooted in it, in something that we know happened historically. But um, the, the statue in Lincoln Park is, is entirely allegorical, and the allegory is of um, freedom being a gift from white people
1: to black people. I want to build off of that, and Joshua, this connects to a, something you had raised a little bit ago in terms of just asking about the origin of the statue. So while the black community was raising the money for this, and then the Western Sanitary Commission was sort of co-opting it, independent of all of that, and they were coming up with some of their own proposals for what the monument could look like, independent of that, Thomas Ball was working in Italy on his own version of a sculpture of Lincoln, and I actually own a, a carte de visite of it, and I'll hold it up here. This is from Florence, so this is something that Ball had made, and when he made the original statue you can see a liberty cap on the head of the enslaved man he had modeled it after himself Uh and then when the western sanitary commission came to him about using the um yeah we should we can hold them up at the same time and people can see some of the changes um they sent him a photograph of a former slave from missouri named archer alexander who was the last missouri slave to be arrested under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, and Ball then changed the design from being modeled after himself to being modeled after an actual freedman, and this has been quoted before, but I had forgotten about it, and Scott found it in the reports of the dedication ceremony. One of the white speakers at the dedication ceremony talked about this change from Ball modeling the slave after himself to modeling it after Archer Alexander and in the quotation at the dedication the speaker said that that slave was supposed to be depicting himself or was supposed to be depicted as an agent of his own liberation Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and so it's it's interesting to see how I guess in Ball's mind he thought maybe he was accomplishing that showing agency and yet from our perspective today
2: didn't
0: work
1: the way Scott was describing it.
0: Right. And I guess just for our listeners who are listening on iTunes, Spotify, or other audio capabilities, uh, you can pop over to YouTube and check out a video of this, um, this, this episode and um, have some videos and images that we referenced earlier to, to check out and encourage you to do that. So, you know, we've got clearly then you've got Charlotte Scott, a freed woman of Virginia who helped fund it initially. You had many other Uh, black americans who contributed to the funding of this and now you've got um an archer alexander um, a former slave who was a model um for the individual depicted there um to me that seems like quite a powerful history that might lend itself to preserving the statute in some way and memorialize it rather than taking it down but um and, and i wonder if part of the issue for the controversy over this is that history just isn't as well known do you think that's if more people knew that history behind it do you think that would um maybe some so. of the con concerns, but not necessarily because I know Scott, you mentioned that just it's um, it's sort of it's irredeemable just the way it looks.
2: It's it's a visceral image. And right. um but but I think uh you know, and and John and I, you know, took this inspiration from Frederick Douglass um from the letter that we found. Um I think that it's possible to redesign Lincoln Park. Um And to render, to leave that statue exactly as it is, but to render it as an artifact of a different time by um, surrounding it, um, engulfing it, absorbing it, really, into an entirely new monument um, that uh, would have Frederick Douglass delivering his speech, would have Charlotte Scott, um, I would argue, standing nearby. Mm -hmm. um, um, as the the person who thought of the first African American um, motivated public art in America. So, and, and I'm not a, an artist or a sculptor, um, so I can't tell you what material it should be made out of or or what style of of representation um, it it should um, take. Um, as we talked about, there is at the other end of Lincoln Park a um, statue of Mary McLeod Bethune, uh, who was a member of uh, Franklin Roosevelt's um, so-called Black Cabinet uh, during the New Deal and was an educator and an activist, founder of the National Council of Negro Women. And that statue was done in uh, the same style that the enormous head of John F. Kennedy uh, <coughs> uh, at the Kennedy Center was done. Uh, or the Einstein statue on Constitution Avenue, mm-hmm. uh, or the um, Will Rogers statue in um, the um, uh, U.S. Capitol building um, in the style of Joe Davidson, who was a, a woman uh, sculptor of the New Deal era. Um, and uh, and here I'm going to show my ignorance of art history in um, describing what, you know, sort of um, clumps of clay, um, you know, sort of pushed together Mm -hmm. um, to make a very um, rough, surfaced, um, almost um, pointillist, um, impressionist kind of image of the person who's being depicted. So I would think that if two statues are added to this one, we would want them to be visually of a quite different style than the neoclassical, um, realistic depiction of um, Lincoln and Archer Alexander. But if that could be done, financed and achieved, um, I, I think it would um, render the the existing monument um, in such a different context. Right. Um, as to portray it as a historical artifact mm-hmm. and, not a, and not a living memorial, although in fact what we would be doing would be, you know, extending its life by making it a kind of living memorial. Right. And the, the park, you know, could be renamed Douglas Park or Emancipation Park or Freedom Park or, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter Park, um, you know, something that the neighborhood, which is currently a buzz in discussion of, of, you know, what or how to um, change or save, uh, you know, that installation, mm-hmm. th- that it could be remade in such a way that would completely um, retain and, and preserve um, this extremely important, um, you know, really quite moving um, history behind an image that has become more problematic um, and and yet add something new. Um, so that, that would only cost in the neighborhood of $50 million. Well, we um, can pull that
0: together easily, I'm sure, right? Yeah. Um, well, I think there's hope, at least if there's, two individuals like yourselves who started off on sides of this came together and not only came together but came together in large part because of Frederick Douglass's own words and suggestions which um, I think really gives it weight and credence if we could touch a little bit on Frederick Douglass um, I find him to be an incredibly fascinating individual Um, he as you know he expressed discomfort with the racial hierarchy and simplistic depiction of it Um, but I'm particularly struck that here's a man who is a, is a former slave worked his way to really to, to fame to a, a remarkable degree for anyone, but particularly a black man of that era. And at the unveiling of this set called it called Lincoln preeminently the white man's president, entirely devoted to the welfare of the white man, white men. Um, I mean, he went on to acknowledge, uh, how Lincoln had to give Kurt certain concessions in order to get emancipation done, but I'm always, I'm just continually struck that he really was, exhibited so much courage. I mean, I think most people in that situation would have just, um, uh, you know, take a much more submissive role, not just because from slavery's purpose, but just because you're in, in that sort of setting um, speaking
2: to so, he was speaking to the president, Congress, the Supreme Court, right. you know, Everybody, he
0: was the, 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 you know on the world stage at that point, and he took it to to really uh, um, give his honest view of of the martyred president, who at that time was you know really well held up. So um, I'm I'm curious yeah. what strikes you about Douglas's reaction and what we should take away from it.
1: I've always been struck by that speech. I've only taught it once and i think i'm going to start assigning it every semester starting this fall i think it's one of the most well-known speeches of douglas would you agree with that scott in terms of just how well-known it is or
2: after what to the slave is the
1: after, after of what july. to the slave of the 4th of july yeah, for, yeah but i also think it's one of the least or most misunderstood mm-hmm. because the the phrase about the preeminently the white man's president is very well known. But as you point out, Joshua, he then pivots. And so for that first part of the speech, he's talking about how as a genuine abolitionist during the Civil War from 1861 to 63, Douglas was really angry with how Lincoln was acting. He -hmm. was slow to emancipation. Once he issues the Emancipation Proclamation and starts arming African-American men Lincoln is not protecting them. He's not giving them equal pay. He's not retaliating against Confederates who are either murdering or enslaving black soldiers. And so Douglas is really angry. And even as late as 1864, Douglas was kind of holding out to see, could there be a better option, a better candidate? Mm -hmm. At the same time in that speech, I think Douglas is acknowledging that if Lincoln had done things differently, they might... the war might not have turned out as it had. And Douglas says, and I'm paraphrasing here, but if Lincoln had put freedom in front of Union, he might not have gotten either.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then at the end of the speech, Douglas is very concerned about Reconstruction. He's very concerned about what's going to happen for African Americans once all of the Southern states are redeemed. And so I think he was sending a message to Grant. David Blight speculates that Douglas wanted Grant to run for a third term because he was hoping that Grant could step in and and protect black rights. And you know, it's so interesting. I'm working on a book about black visitors to the Lincoln White House. And Douglas met with Lincoln three times. So he goes unannounced in August of 1863 to talk to Lincoln about his policies for black soldiers, and to say you're not treating them right, he meets with Lincoln in August of 1864 at Lincoln's invitation, to talk about how can we free as many slaves as possible before Lincoln loses re-election, and then Lincoln's re-elected, and Douglas goes and meets with Lincoln at the um, second inaugural second inaugural party at the White House in March of 1865, and those meetings with Lincoln had a profound impact on how Douglas thought about Lincoln. Mm they gave him a great amount of respect for lincoln and douglas considered lincoln a friend after those meetings what's fascinating is that after lincoln dies douglas goes back to the white house in i think it's april of 1866 and meets with andrew johnson and he gets a very different reception from andrew johnson that he got from lincoln and after douglas leaves andrew johnson calls him the n-word and says terrible things about douglas just for asking for protection and the right to vote and so I think Douglas was, was looking back at the previous 11, 12, 13 years to when he began to get to know Lincoln and how his views of Lincoln changed over time and then what he'd seen with Johnson and then Grant, and he's using this speech as a way to try to reach out to the leaders of the country. Grant and his cabinet are there, Congress are there, the Supreme Court is there, and he wants them to know, uh, we are going to claim part of Lincoln's legacy for us, and this is what it needs to mean. It needs Mm -hmm. to mean the protection of rights for African-Americans.
2: And Mm -hmm. that claiming is really the important thing. Um, um, John, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln gave Frederick Douglass um, Abraham Lincoln's walking stick. Right. Um, And I believe it was the one that he had at Ford's Theater. Um, and I don't know whether he returned to the White House in May of 1865 um, before her departure to receive that gift, or whether it was um, perhaps passed to him by Mrs. Keckley. But it, you can still see it um, at Douglass' home in Anacostia, which is um, on the um, on the other side of the Potomac from the U.S. Capitol, uh, in a little corner of honor. Um, and so in addition to the Actual relationship between Douglas and Lincoln as living men. In, in addition to that evolution, there's also an evolution of Douglas um, of what Douglas says about Lincoln in various speeches.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, Michael Burlingame um, uh, pointed out that in May of eighteen or May or, May or June of June sixty five. June of eighteen sixty five, the first speech that uh, Douglas gave about Abraham Lincoln uh, as a eulogy in the. Um, in the period when so many speeches of, of memory and eulogy were being given, stated that Abraham Lincoln was preeminently the black man's president. Emphatically. It is emphatically, yes, thank you. It's exactly the wording that he then, you know, flips and changes in 1876. And so you know, the natural question would, would arise, did Douglas change his mind? Did he think that Lincoln was emphatically the black man's president in, in 1865, but over the next 11 years, he decided, no, 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 he was actually emphatically the white man's president. And the answer to that is is no. Um, You know, Douglas always had um, strong and kind um, but also um, open-eyed and honest uh, feelings about Abraham Lincoln. Um, Another quotation from that 1865 um, address, I think, is um, where Douglas says, he was the only white man I ever met who uh, never, in any instance, in word or deed reminded me of the difference of status between us. Um, That's a paraphrase, but a pretty close paraphrase. So why the two, you know, why preeminently the black man's, why preeminently the white man's? And the answer to that is that Douglass perceived um, very early, um, perhaps earlier than anyone, that Abraham Lincoln, the symbol was a different thing than Abraham Lincoln, the man. And, uh, you know, most Americans are surprised to know that the great Lincoln Memorial that we have all visited on the Potomac River wasn't built until 1922. Um, You know, 75 years passed between Abraham Lincoln's death and the completion of a truly great, um, you know, memorial to him. Um, So Douglas was one of the first people that was thinking about what does the the symbol Abraham Lincoln mean to Mm -hmm. Americans, and how could um, people who are civil rights activists um, use that symbol to their own advantage? So at a time when, and David Blythe has of course written about this, at a time when American politics and American collective popular memory were devoted to forgetting about emancipation, to, to forgetting that slavery was the cause of the war, um, to remembering Lincoln as the savior of the Union, but not as the great emancipator. It was people like Douglas um, who um, stoked and popularized and nurtured and elaborated and built the um, popular understanding of Lincoln as the great emancipator, which is really ironic given what we're talking about, this statue, the white savior, and it's portraying him as, mm-hmm. you know, with the stroke of a pen. Um, and that that's simplistic. But Douglas was a master um, of rhetoric and symbol and, uh, and he understood that, uh, and he says in the dedicatory address in 1876, by doing honor to Lincoln, our friend and benefactor, we are doing honor to ourselves. In other words, by hitching our wagon to um, this powerful symbol of the martyred emancipator, um, we are building Um, white support and white interest and power for the black freedom movement. The other speech that I um, love to teach um, students by uh, Frederick Douglass is a speech called Self Made Men. And Douglass made a living um, as a motivational speaker. Um, You know, people don't Mm -hmm. know that, but Um, There's not a lot of money in being an activist, um, and there's not a lot of money in being a journalist. Um, Frederick Douglass had newspapers, but he made his living off speaking fees. And he he had a number of canned talks that he went around and and gave at various places that invited him to give them. Mm -hmm. And one of them was called Self-Made Men. And the first time he gave that speech was 1859, and the last time he gave it was 1893. And in that speech, and so the speech evolves over over those decades, and in that speech, um, he holds Lincoln up as the exemplar of the self-made man, you know, the poor boy who studied hard and went from a log cabin to the White House, which is a true story um, and also a powerful symbol of what it means to um, be ambitious and to uh, achieve and to become free in a, in a really individual sense in America. And in that speech, um, Douglas doesn't have to say, I did that too. He doesn't have to say, you know, I was born in slavery and I ran away and I was you know, born in a cabin on Tuckahoe Creek and, um, and I've been to the White House and I've been the uh, ambassador of the United States. Um, but he's drawing a parallel between Lincoln, um, as someone who, um, uh, he actually uses the phrase, um, graduated from the school of hard knocks um, and and was the architect of himself, um, you know, beholden to no one. Mm -hmm. Um, And in that speech, he does with individualism what he does with emancipation in the dedicatory address, he sort of lures the listener into agreeing that Um, individualism and opportunity and the right to rise um, and the right to run in the race of life, which was a phrase Lincoln liked and a phrase that Douglas liked, that that once you agree that that's the meaning of America, Mm -hmm. um, then how can you deny that to black people? Um, And he says uh, there are there are those who are convinced that if given opportunity the black man will fail. then fine, you know, give us opportunities so you can laugh at us when we fail. But I assure you, nobody knows about hard work better than people who have been enslaved. And if you give us opportunity, we will, not, we will not fail, you know, as Abraham Lincoln, a poor boy, did not fail. And as Frederick Douglass, a poor boy, did not fail. So I would say if you want to go to that Lincoln Park, and you, or you want to read the dedicatory address to really understand the arc of uh, Frederick Douglass's actual human relationship with another man named Abraham Lincoln, but also his um, rhetorical relationship with the symbol called Abraham Lincoln. You need to read those those two speeches. You need to read um, the or those three speeches: the, the yeah. June 1865 speech, the 1876 speech in April. And um, the 1893 version of Self Made Man.
0: Mm, excellent thought. Well, I mean, again, I'm I'm so impressed that you guys came to a sort of an understanding that seems like it could um, have traction. Um, but it's worth noting that Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton, D.C.'s sole representative in Congress, announced her intention to introduce legislation to have that statute removed and placed in a museum. Um, I'm confident her position is in the minority in Congress, but at least in the moment, it seems to be gaining ground among outspoken members of the public. Um, who knows where the general populist populace stands on it, but certainly um, they have the attention of the media, the folks who may um, want to have it removed. How do you see a public support for the monument evolving over time? And do you think there's a way, um, and I know you guys aren't necessarily activists, but you have a position that I think is a tenable one, one that could... Um, really offer uh, a solution to this issue. Um, Is there a way you think that this could gain traction uh, going forward with the the general public and and D.C. and Congress?
1: You know, I've been encouraged by things like David Blight's op-ed in the Washington Post, Alan Gelzo, and another historian from Harvard had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. Um, Evelyn Brooks-Higginbotham, just issued a statement uh from she's at harvard and issued a statement saying this this uh, monument is problematic but let's remember it's larger story and so i'm hoping that as more and more voices come out and try to offer broader perspective and also a sort of compromise perspective like scott and i offer is very similar to what david blight suggested in his washington post editorial of let's think about how we can reframe the space. Mm-hmm. I, my hope is that um, we can maybe get there and you know I think about that in the context of confederate monuments where for years and years and years the uh, folks who supported keeping those monuments in place wanted no sort of contextualization or change to those spaces. And now look what happened. There's been incredible change to those spaces. And so they've kind of lost everything. Right. I'm hoping that maybe people who just want to see Lincoln kept in place could say, okay, let's, let's not run the risk of losing everything and having someone just tear it down in the dead of night. Maybe if we think about compromise and how we can change the meaning of this space to better encapsulate the story or capture the story of emancipation, that maybe an idea like that could swell. And I would be one of the first ones to donate money to that. I know it would be expensive. Um, but I, I would love to see a a movement, especially among residents of Capitol Hill, to That's uh, the really
2: interesting thing about, about the controversy, is that it appears that the neighborhood is very invested Mm. in that, in that space. And, um, you know, Uh, Last week when the threat was that it might get pulled down, the event that was scheduled I think for 7 p.m. last Thursday night was a debate, a public debate, Mm. um, you know, about pulling it down Um, and I think some people understood that they were going there to pull it down, but what actually transpired were, um, you know, heated but um, vigorous uh, public debate. Um, Some motivated motivated by emotion, Um, but Mm -hmm. a lot of it, you know, quite reasoned, and and from different points of view. um, There seems to be a generational divide among uh, uh, older African Americans who live in that neighborhood versus younger ones. Mm -hmm. Um, And the older ones have a different relationship with that statue and and view it in a different way um, than the younger ones seem to. So, you know, if somebody 100 years from now, you know, writes an, uh, another version of Kirk Savage's book, um, that, that's going to be part of the story too, that there was this vigorous debate around this uh, memorial and uh, I don't think that Delegate Norton will be able to pass her bill, um, but if in time it comes to pass that this memorial is removed or or it's changed the way um, John and I have suggested, or the way somebody subsequent to us comes up with a better idea. That discussion, I think, will be part of the history of that space, that Mm -hmm. citizens gathered to debate what to do about this. Um, That's a really remarkable thing that doesn't happen all that often um, in public spaces. Um, we're, We're much more used to seeing you know, as in Charlottesville or as in uh, Minneapolis after the George Floyd were much more, um, uh, or in front of the White House, you know, uh, last month, much more likely to see, um, two angry mobs screaming at each other, um, and, and not exchanging views. And, um, the, the situation seems to be calmer now in Lincoln Park than it was a week ago. But as far as John and I are are being informed, um, there's just a lot of uh, buzz in the neighborhood and people are walking their dogs and stopping and talking to each other about, you know, what do you think we should do and I heard this and I heard that and, you know, you're seeing on social media, um, you know, people who live in the neighborhood and, and saw the article that John and I wrote, um, and are saying, oh yeah, you know, I could live with that. Right. So, so there is a discussion that, um, grew spontaneously, um, where, you know, it could have gone a different way, you know, it could have gone toward pulling it down without a discussion, but the discussion, um, seems to be ongoing.
1: Right. Someone told me, I think yesterday or two days ago, that the the college student who was the one calling for it to be torn down, in his initial proposal said either take it down or contextualize it somehow and add to it. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I hope that there will be a movement towards that.
0: Well, you guys have done, I think, a lot to educate um, the public about the history of this, um, and underscore, I know we've mentioned this many times, but your piece that you've worked collaborated on is in the Smithsonian, and you can find that on the Smithsonian's website. We mentioned this earlier, but I think we ought to make sure we give a plug that one thing that uh, allowed for the discovery of um, Frederick Douglass's letter is newspapers.com, and I I think, Scott, in particular, you you, um, wanted to say something about that. I know for myself, I found that to be an incredibly helpful tool for historians you want to elaborate on,
2: Sure. Um, I am not a paid uh, endorser, um, but I've used a lot of newspaper databases, and there are a lot of them, Um, um, you know, some through ProQuest, some through Ancestry.com, which I now think is merged with um, Mm -hmm. Newspapers.com. And of course, there's a free one at the Library of Congress called Chronicling America, Um, but it's only because um, people began to have a discussion and a debate around this Lincoln Park statue and the, the activities of ordinary people um, caused us historians and, and members of the Lincoln Institute board to start having that debate. And then John and me, you know, to mm-hmm. take, it, take it to the DM on, you know, uh-huh. on texting each other and having that debate. It's only because that all happened that we went and looked for it and found it. And that's how history works. You know, that's the reason there have to be more books about Lincoln or any other topic that's that's already got 100 or 1000 books about is because stuff happens tomorrow that um, causes us to look again for something we weren't looking for before. Um, And and that's really, um, you know, some people refer to it as revisionist history, but it's History is always being revised because stuff keeps happening that causes us to look again.
0: Right, to refresh. And what
2: happened in Lincoln Park caused John and me to look again, and we found something that was there to be discovered, but nobody was looking for it.
1: Hmm. And not only the Douglas letter, but also the Charlotte Scott obituaries, Hmm. which again were there in plain sight, but unless we were looking, we weren't going to find them. So this conversation really led to a new discovery, as Scott said.
2: But it was well, really the con- the controversy, you know, that 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 wasn't historians, that wasn't professors, you know, that was regular citizens, people. Um, they're the ones that caused the historians to go back and look again. Mm. Um, and even David Blight, who knows more about Frederick Douglass and has read more of Frederick Douglass' work than any living person, um, you know, had never seen this letter because there hadn't been a spark on the street to prompt him to go looking for it.
0: Right, Mm -hmm. right. Well, I I really thank you guys for your uh, research, your collaboration. I really believe in a um, functioning Republican society, a small R, not big R. Memorialization should be a consensus act through a deliberative process. um, And that rather than through a mob-like approach we handled disagreements or change through persuasion and um, I think you guys have uh, modeled that and I hope that um, your approach is is a model for others um, but uh, but also on this specific issue that uh, people uh, sit up and take notice of what you guys have found um, what Frederick Douglass had to say and I think really the the um, the position you two came together on and so I, I thank you for your work on that tremendously for sure thank um, you. We mentioned uh, you know, the, your column is in the Smithsonian online. My understanding is I think um, your work, your efforts may even be profiled by some other prominent national newspapers coming up. Um, so I don't think this is the end of the discussion by any means, but um, but I think you guys have played a, a large role in it. And so I thank you for that. I don't know if you have any other parting thoughts for our listeners um, on what you hope to see to happen or might think might happen at all. Feel Feel free to
1: share. I just hope that this... Letter keeps getting shared and seen. so if if you're out there watching online, feel free to retweet the Smithsonian's uh, original posting of it and let people know about it.
2: All right, And I, and I would just reiterate that um, you know th- this was a really fun process for John and me. Um, and all history nerds think that historical research and writing is fun, but um, you know rarely do you start from you know, opposite positions and, and then, um, you know, have something come together the way this did. And it's, it's it's not only a model of, you know, civic, um, discussion, but it's a model of how scholars from various ends of various spectrums, um, you know, come together around a methodology, which is Mm. look again, look for the source, look again. Um, and, um, I've never had more fun, um, on a historical mission that I've had this week. It was
1: an exciting few days working on that piece. We were getting it done as fast as we could, and it was a lot of fun going back and forth on it.
0: Well, again, thank you all very much. I appreciate you joining the the Lincoln Log podcast, and uh, we look forward to um, additional conversation and dialogue and scholarship from both of you.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you for listening to Lincoln Log. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like this podcast, please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review. This helps other people find the show.